This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, history, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is the inestimable and wonderful Professor Walter Block. He's returning to the Letter of Liberty to discuss a most stimulating thing, libertarian justice and libertarian Nuremberg trials. In an earlier episode, Professor Block and I brought up the question of justice in libertarian trials. I wanted to elaborate on this with him and talk about some of the implications of his proposals, especially when it comes to establishing a just society and potentially a just world. So I want to welcome Professor Block to the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. What do you mean by libertarian Nuremberg trials? From what I remembered, it was basically something about after the fact a libertarian society is established, then state agents who enforced unlibertarian laws in the previous society are arrested and tried and punished according to the crimes. And so why is that a good thing? Well, I think what we're really talking about is ex post facto laws, and uh, traditional law, you're not supposed to have ex post facto law, because what ex post facto law does is it uh, criminalizes stuff after the fact. In other words, right now it's uh, legal to chew bubblegum and, um, I don't know, uh, and wink. And a lot of people chew bubblegum and wink. And now what we do is we pass a law saying if you chew bubblegum and wink, you go to jail. Well, this is ex post facto law. And, I mean, if the uh, legislature passes such a crazy law and in the future you do it, well, you should go to jail if you believe in democracy, which is a whole other question. But uh, people oppose the ex post facto law, and they say, well, look, it's really unfair. This poor guy was chewing bubblegum and winking, and uh, it was legal then, and now you're going to put him in jail for stuff he did five years ago? Well, the Nuremberg trials established something. And what they established is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, ex post facto law is justified. Now look, in the the Nazi Germany, it was perfectly legal to uh, kill Jews and blacks and gypsies and gays and and, uh, other non-Aryans. And, uh, you know, they were just following orders, the people in the concentration camps, the guards, and they were just killing Jews and blacks and gypsies and gays and other uh, non-Aryans, and everything was fine according to uh, German law. I hope nobody quotes me and says everything was fine. It wasn't really fine, but it was fine according to German law. And then uh, the Germans lost the war, and they were having the Nuremberg trials, and the uh, people were put in the dock, the, the generals and, and the, the colonels and uh, the people, in uh, prison guards who did all these bad things, and they were said, look, uh, we're going to execute you, we're going to put you in jail for doing stuff, and, and the defense said, tut, 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 ex post facto law, you can't do that to us, because that was the German law, and we were just obeying the law. And the Nuremberg trial said, in effect, well, you know, there are certain things that uh, we're going to use ex post facto law on, and one of them is uh, killing innocent people, murdering innocent people. And I think that the uh, Nuremberg trials had it right. The Germans who did that deserved to be penalized, even though what they did was legal at the time. Okay, now let's apply this to, oh, I don't know, the minimum wage law. 
what the minimum wage law does is it uh, creates unemployment for unskilled workers. And suppose I were to go to the inner city with a gun, and I were to say to all young black men, and the reason I pick on them is that their unemployment rate is quadrupled the unemployment rate of uh, adult whites. I would say to them, if you get a job, I'm going to shoot you. Well, we all know what would happen to me. Uh, I'd go to jail because I'm a maniac. However, the minimum wage law does roughly that, that too. So my claim is that when we libertarians take over, and um, I don't know that we will, but it, when and if, we will put in the dock people, not who supported the minimum wage law, because they could do it uh, out of ignorance, and just because you support something, just because you favor it, just because you write in favor of it, you're not a criminal. But if you actually carry it out, if you actually put people in jail for violating it, if you uh, were one of the senators who uh, supported it, if you were one of the um, uh, police or the uh, judges who supported this uh, evil, vicious law, not as evil and vicious as what the Nazis did, but still evil and vicious, well, then, you know, uh, we're not going to execute you for this because it's not a, a, a criminal, uh, what do you call it, a, a first-degree crime. But, uh, you know, we're going to slap you on the wrist and say, you know, you shouldn't have done that because you were forcibly unemploying uh, not only young black men, but anyone who has a, a productivity level below that specified by the minimum wage. I know somebody, and there, everyone knows somebody, who is a little bit mentally um, handicapped and maybe even physically, no, not physically, mentally handicapped, and their productivity level is, oh, two bucks an hour. And they can't get a job at 775 or 15, God forbid, because uh, if their productivity is $2 uh, per hour and the minimum wage law stipulates you have to pay them 15, well, anyone doing it is going to lose 13 an hour off of them and won't hire them, and then they lead miserable lives. And part of the, a good life for people is uh, having some sort of work. And uh, mentally handicapped people, uh, are uh, they have productivity. Their productivity is uh, greater than zero, but it might only be 2 bucks an hour. So they're forcibly unemployed. It's as if somebody went to the mentally handicapped community with a gun and said, hey, you get a job, I'll shoot you. That's bad. So this would be my justification of ex post facto law, not just for the Nazis, but for everybody. Yeah. What did Murray Rothbard, the great libertarian theorist, and in some ways the father of American libertarianism, think about ex post facto law? Did he support it? I don't know. You know, I've read everything Murray has written, everything, but I haven't read it four times, and I didn't read it with the purpose of finding out what his view on ex post facto law is. What I could do is a little research. I could uh, put uh, Google Murray Rothbard and ex post facto law, and uh, I could do it even as we speak to find out what his view is, but I think he would agree with me, but, you know, whether he agrees with me or not, that's my view, and you know, I mean, if he came up with an argument uh, against me, uh, I would uh, very seriously consider it. But uh, I imagine he would agree with me, although I'm not sure. Since you mentioned ex post facto law, I want to think of like the question of statutes of limitations, especially for violent crimes, because in some cases we don't have statutes of limitations for things like murder, but for example, cases of rape. And what if the woman finally comes forward after a certain time and then by that time she can't bring her case to trial or court because it passed the statute of limitations? And my own theory is that theoretically we shouldn't have these statutes of limitations for serious violent crimes. 
But on the other hand, I could see some people making an argument that they are, in fact, useful. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. I agree with you entirely and enthusiastically, but I would go a little further than you. I would say not only uh, shouldn't we have that for uh, serious crimes like murder or rape, but we shouldn't have any uh, statute of limitations for anything. Okay, look, my grandfather stole your grandfather's watch. And it's got your grandfather's name on it. It's got your grandfather's picture on it. And there's no doubt that I'm now on my wrist. I've got your great-grandfather's watch on my wrist. And you see it, and you say, hey, uh, Walter, uh, you know, give me that watch. <laughs> it's my great-grandfather's watch. And he would have given it to my grandfather, who would have given it to my, grand uh, to my father, who would have given it to me. And I say, tut, 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 this occurred, oh, uh, 100 years ago, and the statute of limitations is long gone, and I'm keeping the watch. Well, that seems to me to be a little unjust. I should give you the watch, for goodness sakes, because um, I'm not a criminal, and I didn't realize, say, that it was your grandfather. If, uh, if I did, I should, probably should have come to you and say, hey, look what I got for you. But uh, I didn't notice it. Work with me here. You think I'm pretty stupid. I didn't look at you to watch to see your grandfather's uh, name and picture on it. But let's suppose, just for argument's sake, to illustrate the point, uh, I don't think that uh, statute of limitations should prevent you from getting the watch from me. Now, there is such a thing called natural statutes of limitations, and I agree with that. Namely, the further back you go in history, uh, the harder it is to prove anything because, you know, people forget. And, and if you go far back enough, there was no written language. So, you know, the question comes up, should we give all the land back to the Indians? And uh, I think possession is nine-tenths of the law. He who uh, is the present owner of anything is assumed to be the proper owner, the burden of proof is on anyone who would uh, uh, try to overturn present uh, property titles. But the point is that if the land theft occurred two months ago, it's easy to prove. Uh, you've got pictures of you sitting on the land, you've got documents, but if it occurred 2,000 years ago, like in Israel, or uh, 200 years ago, like for Indians, well, then it's harder to prove. And the burden of proof is on you who want to overturn property rights. So there is a natural statute of limitations. Namely, the further back you go in history, the harder it is to prove anything. So I certainly support that. But I don't support an artificial uh, statute of limitations because that's unjust. If you can prove it, even if it uh, occurred 6,000 years ago, uh, great, 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 great grandfathers, uh, well, I should give you the watch. Well, I don't think they had watches in those days, but work with me here. Yeah, I agree. And I'm thinking uh, now the case of the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and the stories that came up around him and his alleged sexual assaults and indiscretions. And if he did do what he did, then he should be disqualified from the court and potentially prosecuted and punished for that. Because that's a serious thing, no matter how you put it. It's not simply a boys being boys things. It's serious. But if he didn't do it, then there's a different question, and whoever made the claim against him could justifiably receive some punishment, I guess. Yes. Again, I entirely and enthusiastically agree with you. Uh, I think if he did it, uh, and, uh, you know, he should not only be uh, not a Supreme Court judge, he shouldn't even be the present judge that he is, I think, in the appellate court. Uh, and not only that, but he shouldn't be free. He should be paying for his crime, even though the statute of limitations is, what, 36 years ago, 35 years ago, would say he should go free. I say he shouldn't go free. However, the burden of proof is on the accuser, the, the, uh, the uh, 
plaintiff. The defendant doesn't have to prove innocence. The plaintiff has to prove guilt. And uh, I, if I were the judge, I would um, put this lady in jail uh, because she's obviously lying. Because, look, when she was 15, this happened, uh, uh, Ford, Professor Ford. Okay, so maybe she's got an excuse. She didn't say anything to anyone. She was 15. She was a scared girl. Fine. She doesn't have to say anything. And now she's 25. She's still a little scared. But now she's 35. She's 45. She's a lawyer. She's an adult. She should say, hey, uh, Brett Kavanaugh molested me, and uh, I want justice. Instead, what does she do? She comes uh, well, <laughs> like uh, one minute before he's about to, um, uh, what do you call it, be nominated and confirmed as Supreme Court judge and says uh, uh, he molested me. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that's crazy. And now there is a second and a third. You know, talk is cheap. Uh, look, I can say Brett Kavanaugh molested me, uh, you know, uh, 30 years ago. It's not true, but I could say it. And, uh, you know, the, the Democrats are going to say, well, now the FBI has to, uh, uh, has to look into my claim against Brett Kavanaugh, and um, uh, we have to postpone the thing. You know, obviously what the Democrats are doing is uh, uh, trying to postpone the thing in the hope that they'll win the uh, November elections and that Donald Trump will not be able to uh, uh, get his Supreme Court uh, nominee uh, through. Uh, so I, uh, I mean, just uh, as a matter of common sense, Look, you can get 25 other women, uh, most of them, uh, you know, uh, ideological leftists who uh, hate him and hate his ideas. Not so much hate him, but hate his ideas. What do they say? Hate the sin, not the sinner. Well, maybe they'll hate both. I don't know. But you can get another 25 women who are a staunch feminist and a staunch uh, leftist and say, well, he molested me too. And uh, now Brett Kavanaugh starts looking very bad. Uh, you know, so you think, well, maybe next time, uh, like if uh, if he gets uh, through and he becomes Supreme Court judge, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, uh, who's 85 or 86, uh, she uh, retires, uh, you'd think that uh, he'll pick the next uh, candidate as a woman, which means that only women can um, uh, be Supreme Court judges. And even that, you know, uh, what you do is you get some leftist man who will say, well, uh, she was a, a, a slut or a floozy or whatever she was, and she came on to me, and and she was, um, uh, you know, uh, sexual, you know, uh, highly sexual or whatever it is, and uh, and therefore she's not qualified to be a, a Supreme Court judge either. Talk is cheap. You have to prove something. The burden upon the plaintiff is to prove something. And you know, Ford, with all due respect to her professoriate doesn't know what year it was, doesn't know what day it was, doesn't know, uh, I mean, uh, where it was, and, and any of the witnesses uh, don't support her. So I think that, you know, you'd think a girl of 15 would have written it in her diary or, or something. I mean, even if she was traumatized, she would have told her mother or her parents, and maybe if she was ashamed to do it, falsely, she shouldn't be ashamed of being attacked, uh, she would have told somebody, uh, there'd be some witnesses, uh, there'd be something, but she's got nothing. So this is really pathetic. The Democrats should be able to do better than that. They should be able to come up with better lies than that. So I can't believe that any sensible person would believe any of this stuff. I mean, the timing tells all. Yes, but to bring up a point, even if it was timed in a political way to try to delay his nomination and everything, if the claims are true, they are true. But then again, I see where you're coming from, and I do have my own questions about this. At the same time, 
if she is telling the truth, she's probably doing something good because if Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court, there's this whole debate about how he's going to rule over abortion and Roe v. Wade, and that's the argument I heard. And if she, if her statement is true, and I currently doubt it, but if it's true, then she's doing something good if she succeeds. I would just add to it and say not only shouldn't, as I said, he should not only be not on the Supreme Court, not even on the appellate court, he should be in jail if it's true. But look, we don't have a God's eye view. God is not saying one way or the other. Uh, we human beings who put our pants on one leg at a time uh, have to uh, discern uh, truth from fiction, and uh, the burden of proof is on her, and, and I see nothing coming from her quarter that would indicate that, that it is true that he molested her. But if it's true, then yes, I think what you say is absolutely correct. Yeah. So I'm now thinking of the question of retribution and revenge as justice, because normally we have this rhetoric of revenge is not the same as justice. Revenge is about mere self-satisfaction and not about the collective good, which is what justice is, and that if you take revenge, you're a bad person and you're selfish. And even American movies, which have historically have a revenge component, affirm this to some degree, and it's kind of affirmed in Western co codes of law and whatnot. What do you think of that? Well, I'm sort of a little ambivalent on that. On the one hand, I can see it. On the other hand, I can see arguments against that. You know, one of the aphorisms that makes sense to me is don't get mad, get even. Namely, don't be revengeful, but make sure you get your pound of flesh. Uh, because uh, if you're vengeful, it'll hurt yourself, you'll get ulcers, so that that's bad. On the other hand, you know, revenge, a little bit of revenge, I think, is part of justice, so I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent on that. But the, the point is, uh, the way I see libertarian punishment theory, it's really a four-part thing. Let's suppose I steal your car. Okay, so I stole your car. So the first thing that has to happen is I have to give you back your car. We, uh, the government catches me, I'm a car thief. Uh, the very first thing is I have to give you back the car, and if I don't have the car anymore, uh, I have to give you my own car or some other car that's of equivalent value. Or if I don't have any car, uh, the, your car was 10000 so I give you 10000 Okay, that's part of justice. The second part, it seems to me, is that what I did to you should be done to me. Namely, you should get one of my cars, or if it's a $10,000 car, you should get an extra 10000 or 20000 So this is two teeth for a tooth, and not 1.9 teeth for a tooth, and not 2.1 teeth for a tooth, but 2.0, uh, 2 2.000 teeth for a tooth, namely, uh, what I did to you should be done doubly to me. Okay, that's the second part. The third part is, right after I steal your car, if I go to the police and I say, hey, I stole Anon's car, and, you know, I'm a bad guy, and I'm confessing, and here's the car, and I'm sorry, and uh, uh, do justice to me, well, then there is not the third element of uh, catching me. Uh, I don't have to pay any further penalty. Um, uh, whereas if in most ordinary car thieves, I paint the car a different color, I get a new license for it, and now the cops chase me and, and the citizens chase me for five years before they catch me, well, who has to pay for that? Well, it seems to me that I have to pay for that because not only did I steal your car, but then I didn't have the decency to confess immediately and turn the car into, into the police. So uh, all the costs of capturing me, and, and there are a lot of people looking for me, and uh, I should pay that too. So this is very draconian, but now the last is the most draconian. When I stole your car, I scared you. 
uh, your uh, equanimity was reduced. Your feeling of security was reduced because I just stole your car. Uh, I scared you. Now, I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and you, you don't get scared of anything uh, or uh, any of these other movie stars who are, you know, uh, macho men. Uh, the average guy. Uh, the average guy is scared. And now you have to scare me to sort of uh, pay for that and maybe two scares for one scare. Well, how are you going to scare me? You're going to go boo? No, that's not going to work. What you're going to do, I think, is make me play Russian roulette. And the number of bullets and the number of chambers should be in proportion to how badly I scared you. If uh, the way I scared you was I just stole your car in the middle of the night, well, I didn't scare you that much. On the other hand, if you were in the car and I came up to you with a gun and your wife and your kid, uh, in the car and the kids were in the back uh, seat and I uh, pulled the gun on you and said, get out of the car, and uh, I drove away with it, I scared you a lot more, well, then we should have more bullets and fewer chambers for me. And that's my view of uh, libertarian punishment theory. And here, by the way, Murray Rothbard does agree with me. I've read uh, him about this, and he even quotes me as saying this in support of me. So I think that revenge doesn't really come into it. Um, You know, if you want to have a feeling of revenge of making me uh, play Russian roulette, that's fine. You can feel uh, vengeful to me. I don't care. That's just your subjective feeling. The key is, what can you do to me? And what you can do to me is those four things. One, make me give back your car. Two, make me give you my car of equivalent value. Three, make me pay for the cost of capture. And fourth, make me play a little Russian roulette. The the last one is very important because suppose Bill Gates stole your car. He's, I mean, he's a rich guy. Look, I'm not accusing him, God forbid, of stealing a car. That's ridiculous. I'm just saying a very rich man steals your car. He can give back the car easily. He can give back his own car easily. And uh, he can pay the cost of capture. And uh, he can do it again because the, the cost of uh, the, the penalties are very, very small for him. Whereas playing Russian roulette is a very serious thing. And now what you could do is you could say, look, you, Mr. Gates, owe me a Russian roulette, and there are going to be five bullets and oh, tra- 20 chambers, so you've got a quarter chance of being killed. However, I'll let you off that because it's the victim that owes the thing. I, uh, Gates or I committed the crime against you, not against society. And I'll tell you what, Mr. Gates, you give me a billion dollars and I'll let you off the Russian roulette. Now, a billion or maybe 10 billion or whatever it is uh, that you can get out of them, that's going to make a very rich person uh, think twice before engaging in crime under these uh, rules. I agree. And thanks for bringing up that point about the victim being the ultimate person who brings this. I think that seems much fairer than the way we operate because sometimes the victim's concerns are not cared for by the system, whether the victim wants to increase the punishment to what justice demands or whether the victim wants to drop the charges or minimize them. Sometimes it doesn't come into account, especially with mandatory minimums, which demands a minimum amount of years for prison, especially for victimless crimes, of course. And I want to bring the other question a little more technical. Let me just uh, uh, further elaborate on this. You see, right now, uh, you pay doubly. Once I stole your car, and two, now I'm in jail, and you're paying taxes to keep me in jail. That, that's very bad. The other uh, thing I wanted to answer or uh, talk about is an objection. Well, suppose you're scared to, uh, to complain. Uh, about your stolen car, because I say if you complain, I'll uh, kill your kids or whatever it is. What we would then have is insurance companies or some some or private organization that no one can scare, and uh, they they would you would then say when I threaten you, say look, it's out of my hands. You know I can't not 
pursue this because I'm not pursuing it. It's the insurance company that's pursuing it, and a lot of people will sign up with this insurance company or with this private defense agency or whatever. So uh, the objection that that the victim might be afraid to uh, pursue his justice, I think, is obviated by that. But technically, in libertarian law, technically in libertarian law, I could pursue a case on behalf of a victim, right? If the victim is not able to report for various reasons, or I perceive he or she or Z is being aggressed against, am I right? Well, I don't like this he or she or, or Z or anything. I, I I think the word he implies everybody, but uh, that's a little bit off the point. Uh, on the other hand, you know, look, suppose you're a pacifist. I steal your car, and, and you have this view that, uh, no, you shouldn't inflict any punishment on me. Well, it's your right to forgive me. So you could forgive me. Well, not if you sign up with this insurance company. <laughs> you would, uh, you would uh, sign away that right. But if you didn't, you could uh, forgive me. Look, if I punch a pacifist in the nose, uh, the pacifist will not fight back, will not hit me back, and will not uh, call the cops on me because he knows the cops are going to use violence against me. So this is a problem for pacifism. Uh, but the point is that the crime is against the, uh, the victim, not against society as a whole. When I punched you in the nose or stole your car, I did it to you. I didn't do it to, you know, general society. Yeah, and now on to larger questions of punishing state agents. I think this is important because when we see state agents recklessly use violence to enforce drug laws or even petty laws or prostitution laws and sometimes even laws that should be enforced but are enforced excessively like Say, for example, if someone stole something, I mean, the person who stole should be punished, but sometimes a cop may go excessively, depending on the situation, and shoot the guy to kill the guy, and that could be a problem. Well, yes, that certainly can be a problem. Uh, this We're now treading on very treacherous waters, because it might be against the law for me to say that it would be just to uh, use violence against the policeman, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to have to sort of duck your question because I'm afraid that I'm, I might speak against the law and I don't want to be punished by the uh, extant law. Okay. On the other hand, let me just say this. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, black matters people are always uh, on to the uh, point about white cops killing black men. Uh, well, I guess black women too, but mainly black men. And this is a horrible thing. Uh, the white cops or any cops shouldn't be uh, killing black men. Uh, uh, if at all possible, but the statistics are very uh, tell a very different story. Most black men who are murdered or shot are not shot by white cops or by any cops. They're shot by other black men, and uh, the main reason for that is three things: one, the minimum wage law, which unemploys them and gets them bored, so they get into crime, and two, drug laws. Uh, they're fighting over drug turf in a lot of cases. And the third one is that welfare has broken up the black family. And we have all sorts of evidence that indicates that when there's an absence of a black father in the family, when it's a female-headed family, uh, the young men are much more in danger of uh, jail and crime and murder and this and that and the other. So the statistics are that if I were the Black Matters person or in charge of black lives matter, and I wanted to reduce black deaths, I wouldn't worry that much about white cops, a little bit, but not that much. What I would worry about is black shooting each other, uh, which is, I don't know, 99 or 98 percent of all uh, black deaths by murder. So um, uh, 
again, I, I think that the Black Lives Matter people, look, all lives matter, and blacks are part of all, so black lives certainly matter. But uh, the real enemy of, uh, of blacks is other blacks, not uh, white cops or not cops, period. And ultimately, our entire enemy is the state and statism, I would say. Well, the state, the state is uh, uh, having the minimum wage law, it's having drug laws, and it's uh, having welfare, which uh, didn't break up the black family, but caused the black family not to form in the first place. So yes, the state is the ultimate uh, cause of uh, all of this uh, malaise. And if we had less statism, we'd be a lot better. But just on the specific case here uh, of, um, you know, why are so many young black men tragically being murdered, it's not cops. It's other young black men who are shooting each other, which is, uh, which is just a horrible thing. Look, when we had prohibition of alcohol, it wasn't young black men shooting each other. It was young Italian men shooting each other. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly why one case black, one case Italian, but the, when we legalized um, uh, alcohol, all of a sudden nobody's shooting anybody over beer, wine, or, or hard uh, liquor or anything like that. Well, if we legalize not only marijuana, but cocaine, heroin, you name it, all of a sudden nobody's going to be shooting anybody over that stuff, so we'll have fewer black deaths. Not none, but fewer. But still, there'd be unemployment, which leads to crime, and there'd be a lack of fa family formation, which also leads to crime. But at least one out of three would, would reduce uh, this tragic loss of young black men's lives. And now I want to focus a little on the larger social issue of, like, violent revolution or vigilante justice as a form of justice. What do you tend to think of that usually? Well, I love the Tr uh, Bronson movies. Remember the uh, Bronson movies where he was a vigilante and shooting all sorts of bad guys? Yeah, Death Wish. Uh, Death Wish, you know, and Death Wish 2 and Death Wish 3 and Death Wish 4. I'm a big Charles Bronson fan. He was great. Nothing wrong with vigilantes, uh, per se, as long as they shoot the right people. Uh, problem is if they shoot the wrong people. But every once in a while, the cops shoot the wrong people, too. There was this female white cop who went into... Uh, someone else's apartment, thinking it was her apartment, and there was a black guy standing in his apartment, and she thought it was hers, and she shot him. Well, you know, uh, look, uh, policemen are imperfect human beings, too. They make mistakes also. Um, so there's a lot of error. The human being is a mistake-making animal. You know, you get up in the morning, you make a mistake. You can make mistakes all day long, and you go to bed, that's probably a mistake, too. So we all make mistakes. Um, no one's perfect. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes another potential problem with vigilantes is sometimes if they attack people like sex workers or people who are undesirable. I mean, I'm not saying they typically do this. They typically would likely go after actual crime, which is fine and even wonderful and worthy of making good art out of it. But, you know, that could also be a problem, especially for moralistic vigilantes who want to shoot misbehaving people, which you see in horror films, where like the horror villain kills somebody for having premarital sex or using drugs or doing something that we wouldn't consider a crime, but maybe a vice. Yes, uh, vices are not crimes. I think it was Spooner who uh, uh, mentioned that. Uh, look, uh, the reason that uh, some vigilantes are shooting prostitutes, again, is the government's fault, because prostitution is illegal. If prostitution were legal, you wouldn't have women out in um, uh, residential areas or where the vigilantes would get them. They'd be in red light districts where the vigilantes would sort of leave them alone, or not even in red light districts on the sidewalk, 
Uh, of course, if we had private sidewalks, the sidewalk owner would make sure that they were safe if they were out on the sidewalk, but they probably wouldn't be in the sidewalk. Look, massage therapists uh, don't uh, hang out on the sidewalk. Um, nurses don't hang out on the sidewalk. But yet, if um, if we prohibited nursing and we prohibited massage therapy and we prohibited lawyering and doctoring, uh, they'd be out on the streets too. So the key is don't prohibit things that are just vices, not crimes. And I think uh, prostitution is a vice. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want my daughter to be a prostitute, but if she were, I wouldn't want her to go to jail for it or be shot by a vigilante. So again, we come back to statism. Uh, if you look at the ultimate cause, it's not the vigilante. It's the government that prohibited this thing in the first place. Look, in, in Nevada, except for Las Vegas, in many counties in Nevada and in many uh, countries in Europe, uh, prostitution is legal, and nobody's shooting any prostitutes. So I think the key is that uh, we should uh, legalize prostitution. Agreed. Completely agreed. And so now the question of revolutions and the treatments of people after them, we go a little to the historical side. For example, the treatment of loyalists and even of southern slaveholders after the Civil War. Sometimes in the case of loyalists, the punishments were excessive. Simply supporting the British side shouldn't, allow, shouldn't cause you to be tortured or hurt or dispossessed of any legitimate property. But in some cases, the Tories were actual legitimate threats. And of course, the southern slaveholders held slaves and in many cases tortured and hurt them and were fighting to uphold the slave system and stuff like that. Well, I think you're making some good points. But first of all, let me just uh, make a minor uh, uh, correction, uh, just a verbal dispute. There was no civil war in 1861. It was a, a war uh, of southern secession or a war of northern aggression or a war between the states. Uh, look, the Spanish Civil War in 36 was a civil war because both sides wanted to run the whole country. The Russian Civil War of 1917 was a, a true civil war because the Red and the White Army each wanted to run the whole place. Uh, in 1861, uh, the South didn't want to run the North. The North wanted to run both the North and the South. The South only wanted to run the South. So it was a war of secession, not a war of, um, uh, not a civil war. Uh, but I think you're making a good point, uh, an interesting, certainly an interesting point. What happens to the losers in, in a war? Well, uh, the winners are not usually too gentle with the losers. They, they accuse them of treason, and uh, they punish them very severely. Now, I think uh, what should have occurred at the end of the uh, war between the states or the war of northern aggression or the war of southern secession in 1865 is that we should have had ex post facto law for slaves. Uh, rather for slave owners. What we should have said is, look, slavery is kidnapping. It's a long-term kidnapping. And we have laws against kidnapping, and slavery is just a version of kidnapping, a very serious version of kidnapping, a long-term kidnapping. And if you kidnap people for their whole lives, or for 10 or 20 years, uh, as the slave owners did of the slaves, you're, you're a, a, a kidnapper, and you should go to jail. And all of your uh, money and, and your plantation, whatever, should be turned over to the slaves who really homesteaded and worked on, on the slave, uh, on, on the plantation. I mean, on a typical plantation, there might be a 1,000 slaves and, um, I don't know, 20 um, uh, overseers and, and uh, one uh, owner of the whole kit and caboodle. It's the slaves that did 99.9% .9 of the work. Uh, we should have had reparations. Uh, namely, they should have been given, what was it, 40 horses and a mule kind of thing? Namely, if there were 1,000 slaves and 1,000 acres or 10,000 acres, each slave should have got 10 acres or whatever the division was. Uh, 
And uh, we should have reparations uh, even nowadays. If there's some black guy in the middle of Harlem who can prove that his great-grandfather was on uh, on my plantation or my grandfather's plantation, uh, he should get uh, you know a proportionate share of that plantation if he can prove it. But again, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff, and if he can't prove it, you know, I, I don't believe in reparations from all whites to all blacks because, you know, all whites, uh, you know, no present white was ever a slave owner and, and no present black was ever a slave. So I'm not for reparations on that holist bolus basis, but on an individual basis, if a black person can prove that his great-grandfather was a slave on the on a plantation in South Carolina, he should get, uh, you know, a proportionate share of that um, plantation. Yeah, I'd agree. And in the 60s and 70s, when the libertarians were debating about these issues, this question of reparations and public land and who would generally get to own it and who would have the rights to it, to use it, this was a big debate, especially with the 1960s student revolts and the discussions and protests and the questions of student rights. And Murray Rothbard tended to favor, when it came to public property, that whoever was actually using it and was actually on it, whether it's students or professors or whatnot, they would have the genuine rights to that property or university campus area or whatnot. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. This is a pure Rothbardianism, and I certainly agree with that. And as for the reason why I use the term civil war, of course, it's the traditional use in American history, and I do tend to use traditional usages, not always, but usually. And of course, the southern states seem to at least want to expand to other, at least unclaimed territories and expand slavery there. And there was a whole debate about whether new territories would be free states or slave states. So in that sense, I could think it was a civil war regarding who would get control of not only the U.S., but even other new territories, which would be part of the Union. Yes, and I think you're right. In that sense, it was sort of civilish, civilish war. Uh, not so much north and south, but west. Uh, there, there was a uh, dispute as to uh, what what should happen. But uh, if the but what the Confederacy wanted, and I'm not going to get into the question of was the war over slavery or tariffs. That's a complicated issue. But what the what the South wanted was to secede. And if they had seceded, and there was a new country called Southern U.S., it wouldn't have mattered to the Southern U.S. whether uh, California or uh, Wyoming uh, came in as a free state or a slave state. The the the, uh, the Confederacy states would have been a uh, a country, and uh, presumably the North wouldn't attack them if they were libertarian, because by the way there was slavery in the North as well, you know, uh, not not just the South, uh, but that that's a different issue. But I agree with you that. Uh, if the um, if the South stayed in the Union, then the West was civil war-ish. But uh, on the other hand, if they were allowed to secede, then it wouldn't matter to them what the Western states were. Uh, they could, you know, if they were slave, they could come into the Southern Confederacy, and if they were not, they would be part of the North America country. Yeah, and I think of perhaps a more libertarian model for ending slavery than what actually happened. And by the way, I do think slavery should have ended by violence because it's the way it happened is violent. But I think a more sustainable model for that would have been John Brown's model because John Brown was this independent, private man who was fighting from his own expenses and generally targeted only guilty people rather than devastating whole towns like William Sherman did. And then, of course, you know, it's interesting. Um, Malcolm X, uh, during his most racist period, was once asked, 
um, would any white man qualify to be part of your black Muslim group? And you know what Malcolm X said? Yes, John Brown. Now, I don't know, I'm not a historian enough to know uh, whether John Brown was a totally good guy or, or not, but uh, the platonic John Brown, the one who attacked government forts on the grounds that they supported slavery, was justified. On the other hand, I'm not so sure I go along with this idea that it should have ended in violence, because uh, that, that violence from 1861 to 1865 killed a lot of people, a lot of precious people, and I'm... I'm I, I like people. I'm a pro-humanist. I, I, I think human beings are good. We should have more of them. And in many other countries, all throughout South America, Caribbean, uh, Central America, uh, they had slavery, too, and the slavery ended without violence. So uh, I'm not really a fan of violence. Look, if necessary, uh, you have to have it sometimes in a defensive war. But uh, certainly it would have been better if um, if slavery would have ended other things equal uh, without violence. Yeah, at least John Brown style, more limited violence at least. And anyway, even if the Civil War did happen and it was the bloodiest American war besides the American Revolution, I think it was better that it happened now than, say, later, because if it happened later, that would have even been bloodier and they might not have been enough medical developments to cope with all that. And so it's a very equivocal and pyrrhic victory in the end, I'd have to say. Yes, you're making a good point, because, uh, and I would add to it by saying that if it happened later, then the slaves, the blacks would have been slaves for longer. So you, you would, uh, that wouldn't be good. Namely, we should end slavery as soon as possible. And uh, I would have been an abolitionist if I were in the 1850s. Namely, uh, slavery is an abomination, slavery is evil, and we should get rid of it uh, as soon as possible. Hopefully with the fewest deaths, but, you know, uh, got to get rid of it very quickly because it's a horrible thing. It's wonderful, wonderful insights. And before we close, I just want to ask just a few more brief questions before we close. Is that fair? Sure, shoot. So who's your favorite of the Founding Fathers? Huh, that's an interesting one. Well, I guess um, uh, oh, Jefferson was probably, when Jefferson was a president, he was not that good. But when Jefferson wasn't president, he was very, very good. So I guess the, the non-presidential Jefferson would have been my favorite Founding Father. Yeah, mine is either that Jefferson or even Samuel Adams the Great, quote-unquote Leninist in terms of his ability to organize a revolution and protests, and then Patrick Henry, the great evangelical Christian who said, yeah. give me liberty or give me death. And also John Quincy Adams said, we do not go abroad in search of dragons to slay. We mind our own business. I'm giving a, a rough approximation of what he said. He was more eloquent than me. And so the question of, if you had a button to end the state, would you press it? Yes. Same here. And Murray Rothbard said he would blister his finger pressing the button. Uh, I, I would press it. <laughs> Realizing that there would be problems. There would be initiatory problems. You know, how do you set up the um, defense agency? It's going to take a while, but, uh, you know, the state is such an abomination. You know the way I converted a friend of mine who was a minarchist, namely a minimal government uh, supporter? I said... He was afraid of uh, the mafia and the blood and the crypts and other gangs. And I said, well, how many people have they killed? Oh, you know, a couple hundred maybe. Uh, and then I said, how many people did the U.S. 
did governments, all governments uh, kill in the uh, 20th century, and the number is 200 million. And that's not wars, that's just 200 million of their own people. So if you look at it just in terms of saving lives, the state is not a good bet, much better to rely on private enterprise. I completely agree, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time out of your day to speak with us about this important topic of justice, which we will always have to debate until the end of the world. Yes. Thanks for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure, and I look forward to the next installment. Thank you. Take care. Until next time, this has been The Letter of Liberty, where we have discussed literature, liberty, politics, history, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.